G'day guys, Tom Craig here. Welcome to my podcast, The Help Side. Now the help side is a term in hockey that refers to the other side of the pitch, away from where the ball is and the action happens. And in the same way, the aim of this podcast is to give you, the listener, an insight into the other side of elite hockey players, to hear about their highs, their lows, and what makes them tick. We'll also hear about the journey they went through, from having fun in the backyard to playing out their dreams on the world stage. So whether you're a player, a coach, an umpire, a parent, a fan, or just a fan of sport in general, I'm hoping this podcast gives you a window into the world of elite athletes, and even better, encourages you to get more involved in our great sport. You can hear the chat we had last week and others you may have missed by searching The Help Side on any major podcast platform. And if you want, you can like and subscribe our page to make sure that you're up to date with the most recent episodes. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's get to this week's guest. Welcome to part B of the Help Side special with Adam Dixon. In the last episode, we had a fascinating chat to Adam about the GB high performance setup and the state of play of hockey in the UK. Really interesting stuff. And if you haven't already, I would suggest going back and listening to what Adam has to say in part A of this two-part series. Now in this episode, we get more personal and explore Adam's journey as an international hockey player. From winning gold at his first international tournament to missing selection at his home Olympic Games in London, through to getting his chance to shine at the Rio Olympic Games, and now being on the verge of leading his country to the Tokyo Games as captain. So let's rip in part B of the help side of Adam Dixon. You've had a very interesting journey. I mean, you debuted in 2009 um, after must be said a pretty good indoor tournament it seems like that was kind of the gateway to your your national outdoor career is that is that a fair statement um yeah it would have played a bit of a part i've not mm. really thought of it because indoor hockey's uh not a huge sport it's probably the same okay. in, in Oz. um well it's very small but it so does yeah. but it does um i loved it just the quick like the, the fast pace mm. high scoring mm. skillful but it's also like very tactical um game like it 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 sort of suited my physical strengths being five foot tall (laughs) low to the ground (laughs) it suited me perfectly um but yeah like the england england indoor program kicked off just before i joined the outdoor squad and it definitely was andy halliday who's the who's the current england manager for the outdoor squad he was our indoor coach Mm. and um our indoor squad didn't feature any of the senior internationals. It wasn't sort of a priority at the time, but it certainly started, it gave you that sort of window of opportunity yeah. or, you know, to be noticed. Yeah. Um, and yeah, some good memories. Like we had, we had to start at the bottom of the European indoor competition, which is like C division playing mm-hmm. against, I think Turkey and Sweden, Belarus and other teams. And, wow. and then we went all the way through and we went, went to world cups. I never went to the world cup, but the team qualified for the World Cup and European A divisions and stuff. So it was mm. it was quite a good time. But um, yeah, I always wanted to be an outdoor international. Yeah. I'd had my eyes set on that for well, ever since I was that little six year old. Yeah. I think my earliest memories were probably watching Atlanta, then Sydney Games on on BBC, and that was the only time you could you could watch hockey on telly as a as a mm. kid in the in the UK was to see the GB team men's and women's when the Olympics came around. So mm. I think I had like a 
a worn out VHS, like this like GB versus <laughs> Holland men's game. We've got Callum Giles and Tim Denoy, like, lo- like loads of people. But I just remember watching that and thinking, gosh, that's, that is the pinnacle of, yeah. of, of our sport. And I, w- I want to be there. And I think, yeah, that sort of definitely instilled a lot of inspiration um, in me. Yeah. And when I finally got that chance to play in 2009, it was, uh, yeah, it was a dream come true. Yeah. Like, I, was I can remember it as well. Clear as I mean, day. For, for GB too, you were like, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about your debut, I guess. I mean, if it's a lifelong dream, how did it feel stepping out there on the pitch? Um, yeah, it was, we, we played, um, we played Germany in Nuremberg mm-hmm. and it must've been about April, May time of 2009. It was just a couple of test matches. Mm. I can't remember what sort of size squad we took out there, but there was obviously a good chance that I was going to get my first cap. I was playing halfback those days and just got thrown in. I think we lost the game 2-1. And I had probably the greatest opportunity to score on debut <laughs> you could ever be gifted. I was trapping short corners. At that point, I wasn't a gun flicker like I am. These days. <laughs> I, was tra- <laughs> I was trapping his corner and whoever injected the ball pulled it out very badly over to my yeah. forehand so I trapped it and I was faced with a free shot on goal yeah. and I ripped this shot but it flew past the post by like an inch and I just I just remember doing that like, it, it then took me probably about 35 games to get on the score sheet right. and I just I always kept coming back to that first game I was just <laughs> wishing you should have scored you should have scored but yeah it was like singing the national anthem for the first time yeah being part of that squad in which you know Ashley Jackson Ben Hawes Rob Moore um, Glenn Kirk there are loads of really good players mm. who I've looked up to and played against for a long time and to be finally sort of accepted into that group was um, yeah it was a real I guess defining moment for me very cool um, but it did yeah go on to be a pretty good summer a great year then you went to the Euros yeah so that's which is of, big as well for, for the Aussie the listeners Euros, we yeah, don't so yeah guess, explain it explain how big that is for you guys the I'm trying to find some good words in my vocabulary, which I'm going to struggle with. Um, but maybe should I keep it simple for you? I mean, if, um, we, if we go back to the three <laughs> words you used to describe you, um, you can keep it in that level. I mean, okay. That's fine. Um, trying to yeah, say the Europeans is sort of like, um, it's like a mini World Cup, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, we get the, the luxury of having it every two years. You know... Again, it's like, a, it's like a tiered system. You've got the top eight teams in the A division and then the next run down, top, the, the, the next eight teams, B division, and there's the C division. And um, yeah, we, we turned up to that tournament. Uh, it was in Amsterdam. Again, like, you know. Great place to play hockey. Holy grail of, <laughs> of hockey, Amstelveen. Um, we had a pretty tough run in. I think we did, we did play... Po- uh, Maybe it was Austria or Poland. We had quite, yeah, so we had like a, I think we won the first game like 10-0, but then we played Belgium mm. in the next game, who coincidentally, like now actually looking back, they were a young team and we beat them by six goals to two or something. Mm. Like it was a real comfortable scoreline. Mm. But now you look at that squad that Belgium had in that tournament, a lot of that team now featuring, you know, yeah, in the team same, similar time. going today. And they were like, yeah, they were giving a lot of that talent like they were blooding that talent early that early on so yeah. for people who think that that Belgian team is now you know they've just come about in the last you know four or five years 
mm. um, probably misled because they've been, you look at some of their caps, caps along there, it's, yeah, it's insane. They were going, but yeah. that's 2009. Yeah. Um, like Denier and yeah. Played a lot of games. Others. A lot of games together. Um, yeah. So then we played like, we played Germany in the group stage. Uh, I think we may, may have drawn that game. Um, and that was our pool stage complete. And so then we went up against uh, Holland in the semi-final. So you can imagine, I mean, you've, you've played the Dutch in Amstelveen with a packed crowd. You know what mm. it's like. It's all quite cosy. Like the, the, the stands are really close in. It's very so orange. you get a really good atmosphere. And then when they sing that national anthem, like it's just it's something else. And I remember this was a team that had like obviously like Denoya, Takamar like in his absolute prime, like ripping corners like for fun, like Ronald Brower. It was just like a star-studded team. And we, and we, we beat them somehow. <laughs> um, I remember James Fair in goal um, having an absolute stormer. He probably won us that semi-final. Like it was just one of those things. Even if he wasn't quite in the right place, things just hit him. You know, mm. it, was, it was just one of those games. Like Takamara, like was flicking the ball on corners, and the ball was hitting Fair's helmet and flying <laughs> over the bar, and just things were going right. And we had this, yeah, we just had this sense of sort of reckless like uh maybe not reckless but like this confidence that we mm. didn't necessarily have control of but like we knew it, something good was happening all the way through that tournament so we managed to get past the dutch and we played the germans in the final again zeller you know the zeller brothers even uh first uh and we we beat them on golden goal golden goal it was like it was back in the days of golden goal extra time it was just incredible Mm. Um, and that was my first ever international tournament so to sort of be thrown in as like as the newbie and uh, witness sort of um, European success right from the off was was incredible and it's something I think knowing what that sort of success feels like we've not really had that same success since 2009 there's probably not many of us who have had gold medals on the international stage. Like knowing what that feels like drives me mm. on even more to want to, even at the age of 33, to keep going and yep. try and get some, get some more gold. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, that was a, uh, certainly look back on that summer with uh, very fond memories. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting point that we're going to pick up on later. Um, it wasn't super smooth sailing though. I mean, you're, you're an Olympian, you went to Rio um, we'll get to that as well. But um, in between 2009 and 2012, it was the Home Olympics. I mean, that was, you weren't picked in the 2012 team and that, that was very disappointing for you. Um, do you want to just talk about that experience? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't mind at all. Um, yeah, so I guess it's sort of to like wind it all the way back to 2009. Mm. That was my first tournament. And then yep. for that whole London cycle building up to 2012 European Cups Champions Trophies mm. Aslan Charlotte all those events yeah. there was I went to every single tournament mm. and then to not get picked for that big one at the end the one you've always dreamt of yeah it's pretty uh, pretty crushing I didn't find out in the best of circumstances um, but not necessarily helped I, I actually got the news over a phone call I wish mm-hmm. I could have not that I would have been able to challenge and change the coach's mind but i wish i'd had it face to face but 
I think it happened that we'd had our training slot had been moved at the time I was living in Nottingham, two hours away from Bisham Abbey. This was before centralized program. Um, and we came down for a camp. Our pitch session had been brought forwards um, by a couple of hours. And the, the individual meeting that I had about my Olympic selection was in the afternoon of that same day. But being in a car full of all the other guys as well, we just wanted to get back off to Nottingham and um, yeah, just get back home as quick as we could. So mm. I said to the coach, do you mind if you just call me instead of having a face-to-face chat? He said, yeah, no problem. And yeah, I got the phone, I got the phone call and got the news and I was just like, absolutely good. I couldn't, couldn't really bring myself to tell my parents. Mm. Um, that was probably the hardest, hardest thing because they're, they probably had the same expectations as me in a way that I'd been, you know, a solid part of that squad yeah um for best part of four years and then to not get picked for that for that games and they look like the london games you, you speak to any like people say it's one of the best organized games that's been going like the amount of i think you sort of have to understand like the media hype of a home games is probably something you, you for that 18 24 months building up to the london games you, you couldn't escape it it was on every tv advert um you know, the news were reporting every sort of homegrown Olympic sort of story they possibly could. It was huge. And i have been a part of all those uh, interviews and stuff as well. And then to not get picked, it's like, oh, like it's huge, massive. Like, I felt like a bit of a letdown, to be honest. Um, letdown to my friends and family. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was really tough. I, I never really did get a solid reason behind. Like, it wasn't – I don't – it wasn't like, oh, you're not a good enough defender or mm. you're not fit enough or nothing like that. It was more like the balance of the team feels right with X as opposed to Y. So it was, uh, yeah, super, super, probably the lowest point in my um, Crazy. my hockey career. Um, I mean, it's so, well, it's, we did a, yeah, go on. I, was just, I mean, I often think, did you get complacent? Like could you have done more yeah I mean you could always do more I'd I actually quite recently listened to a podcast where they spoke about um this is probably quite controversial but it's it was called something like planned like within an athlete development like Mm. pathway like planned trauma so like Mm -hmm. there's like there's good evidence that suggests that if you have a player who is suffered some sort of trauma whether it be deselection mm-hmm. or an injury and they've had to fight back and come back they, they basically come back to cut a long story short they come back uh stronger yeah uh, and i sort of like thought of my own hockey development journey and that like i wonder if if the coach just hadn't picked me for one of those tournaments in that four years would that have like you know lit the fire a little bit you know, stoke that fire a little bit more in, in my belly. But so I'm not putting the blame on the coach. Like he's got his job is to pick the, what he thinks is the best team. And there's no doubt that he did that. But yeah, I, of course you just, you catastrophize and you think of all the eventualities and stuff. So that was the sort of stuff that was going through my head. But I just thought that that concept of like putting, like you would never put someone who was vulnerable to like mental health or whatever into one of those situations. You never drop someone on purpose. Mm. But like if all the sort of pieces of the jigsaw were, were well aligned and that person was skilled enough to be able to cope with a with an upset like is that something we should maybe be be looking at um, and we all know people who have who have uh 
who have suffered setbacks and come back stronger yeah. or haven't and have, you know, yeah, it was just something I thought about. Yeah. The other day. No, that's interesting. You mentioned that, uh, in, in something, in an article, um, you featured and you said that the Rio games was one of the highlights of your career, I guess, referring back to your point about the disappointment of London. Thanks for sharing that, by the way, that's, uh, that's, that's difficult to do, but do you think that that, that missing, um, that selection did it light a bigger fire for you to get to Rio, perform well. Um, I mean, now you're the captain of GB. Not that that's a, an individual accolade that people actively seek, but I mean, you've your career's gone over and above. I guess, I guess since then, do you think? Do you draw upon without, that regularly? Is, is I guess what without I'm without doubt, yeah, without doubt. Um, my sort of yeah, that sort of like catastrophizing stage was just like right, I'm done with hockey. Mm. <laughs> like I actually didn't go and watch the Olympics. I watched a little bit on TV. Yep. I didn't, I wish I sort of had probably one of my greats. I, I wish I had done cause it was a, such an amazing event, but I just felt like I needed to get away from hockey. Yeah. So I went, I bought a camper van. I went <laughs> traveling in Europe for five weeks, surf every day, you know, just ate what I wanted to eat. And me and my fiance, now fiance, we had such a great time. Um, but then it was like sort of like a bit of a soul searching trip without really intending to be. Mm. And basically came away from that trip. Like it was only been five weeks since I last picked up a stick, but like hungrier than ever um, to, to play hockey. And um, there was no way that I was going to not be on that flight to Rio. Like yeah. absolutely no way. And I mean, you've, you've got to, you've got to work hard for stuff and um if there's anything I learned from that disappointment from London was just that you have to sort of, you can't let, you can't let fate decide. You've got to sort of, mm. you know, if you really want something, you've got to make it obvious that you want it, you know, almost put the coach in a place where he has to pick you because you've trained your nuts off for, um, for four years. And that was how I went into that next Rio cycle. Now the how Rio went wasn't brilliant, but for me, the Rio games being part of, you know, putting on that kit and being part of the Olympic Games had always been a dream of mine. And I sort of like every single morning that I, I woke up in the village, opened the curtains, I was like, oh, God, that's so grateful to, to be here, um, which was sort of a bit weird because there's a lot of other people there who were like just dead set on winning a medal. And yeah. it was all that mattered to them. They didn't really enjoy the moment. And I think you have to have, if you're going to be successful and look back on the experience as a whole as, as a successful one, without a medal or with a medal, like you've got to smile along the way. <laughs> like, you've got to enjoy these moments. You can't, it can't all be built up and be pressurized. You've, um, you, you, you play your best when you're happy and relaxed. So that was how I sort of went into, into Rio. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's an interesting one as well, because we spoke about it earlier about, um, you know, at the Commonwealth games, I guess you perform as, as England, you guys play as England, there's Scotland involved as well as involved. Um, and then, when you when you come around to Rio in the Olympic cycle, you're playing as Team GB. Um, yeah, that's how does how does that work? How does that work with the with the um, team environment? And I guess worked. you as captain now, like, how do you kind of is that is yeah. that difficult? It's it's not. I think it's an obvious trip trip hazard. Mm. So I think from day one, the powers that be at GB Hockey, the board, all the representatives from England Hockey, Scotland Hockey, Wales Hockey. Northern Ireland like they all knew that this like if not if it's not managed well could be terrible so 
to 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 simplify it the olympic selection uh sorry the olympic qualification is is done by one of england scotland or wales and at the beginning of olympic cycle you have to nominate which of those three teams the fih or the olympic association um the ioc they require one of those teams to be like the nominated qualifying nation Right. most often than not is England because of world rankings mm. a bit higher than the other two. So we go often as, as, um, as England and all we had done until this year, um, 2019, sorry, where we, we actually did compete as uh, GB for qualification. All the other years we have to do it as England. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically England are the nominated governing body for GB. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of the admin stuff all goes through the England hockey office mm-hmm. on a more like on a more day to day, like playing side of things. Day in day out, we train as GB. If you mm. look at it simply, we train as GB. All the all the athletes are there, no matter which country you're from. Yeah. Um, I think there are, you know, we've got um, a couple of Welsh guys, and Alan Forsyth is our Scott. Um, so there's not a huge, you know, proportion of the squad is is non-English. Um, I think just having everybody around the whole time certainly makes life. Yeah so much easier for a captain you don't have to yeah you, you see the guys every day so there are definite times when okay right this is like the the home nation england scotland wales like focus period so you don't if you're alan Forsyth or drapes or rupert shipley like you can go and train with your with your home nations um but they won't have a centralized program like we do they'll be on a camp basis so they have to manage their time really well but it, it sort of does work quite nicely um i mean up again i've only really ex- obviously only experienced that as an englishman so it doesn't really affect me as much mm. but i think you know danny picks scots welsh english like you know on merit and not where you know where you're born or what um yeah what your heritage is so it's um yeah it's not a it probably looks quite confusing from the outside. I know when I went and played in Holland, they were like, what's all this GB England? Like, <laughs> how's, what's going on? I'm like, it's just like politics. Don't worry about like, yeah. but um, I guess I could, I could probably see you from the other, on the other side of things. If you're like one tournament, you go and you're playing England and one tournament you're going, and then you're playing against GB. It could be a bit, could be a bit strange, but I don't think it, uh, it's only a positive for us because we get to pick a couple more players yeah, yeah, that yeah, we can for, sure. for England. Yeah. For sure. So I guess you, you guys might look at it and think, oh, it's, bit of unfairness but the olympic games we we only compete as gb anyway so it's, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 no it seems like it's it's more the the cultural piece i guess i mean you answered okay. the question beautifully because like the guys train with you the entire time and then i guess it's the anomaly where just before a commonwealth games i imagine where they go and train with scotland for a little bit or wales or something like that yeah, but you yeah. you are team gb and yeah very rarely splinter off is that fair Exactly that. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, and with that, I mean, I want to talk about Pro League briefly. Um, 2019, for us, it's kind of, it's different because either you European countries, you come and, oh, well, I don't know if you are a European country. I don't know really what the what the politics are behind that or whatever. So countries <laughs> like Northern Hemisphere countries, um, <laughs> we go and tour and we, we just play, you know, bang, 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 Spain, Germany, Belgium, whatever. We play all of you in five weeks. Um, and it's great because it's a European tour. We're there, um, and we've got you know five, six games to to focus on. But I mean, you guys come out to Australia, especially last year. You flew all the way to Australia to play one game, all the way to Argentina <laughs> to play one game, all the way to New Zealand to play one game. 
it, that must be difficult. I mean, with your club competition, you guys are used to kind of getting up on the weekend for, for one game. I mean, yeah. week in, week out. But I guess, and as well, as a, as a leader in that team, is it difficult to motivate the guys? For one you game? know what? I think it's sort of maybe the opposite. Mm-hmm. That's the way I looked at it anyway. I think mm. you're going for one game, so you've got to be ready. True. You've got to be prepared and you've got to give it all. It, it felt The Pro League for me last year felt a bit more like being a football player. True. And you're just peaking for the weekend. Like that's sort of how it felt for me. Especially when yeah. you get that, you know, that quick succession of games on on home soil. Like mm. you've got to be you've got to turn things around quick. There's maybe not so much time to work on lots of things in training during the week. Like you've just got to be ready for the game ahead. Like there's always another game coming. So for me as a I keep referencing my age, but as an older guy, <laughs> I'd much prefer being like playing games than being training and stuck in a training block routine cycle. So for me, it was like, great, like pro league, mm. let's go and travel the world and play some games. Like, I couldn't think of anything better. But yeah, I can't take away from the fact that it's a hell of a long way to come to Perth and play just one game. But um, we had, I think our, um, our performance director is pretty clued up when it comes to um, organising calendars and stuff. So we wouldn't go anywhere without having a good like five or six days before a game um especially on those long haul flights yeah. uh, we'd have a good lead in like get some heat exposure get the jet lag jet lag out of the system go for a and surf and then um go for a surf thanks very much for lending me the board <laughs> and um and yeah i think we've actually managed that really well mm. um is it a sustainable model we definitely got it a bit better this time around with playing two games rather than one yeah um I guess the financial side of it, like only time will tell whether it works or not. But I think from a playing perspective, yes, it's tough, but I'd much rather be playing games. Yeah, okay. Give me a game over training yeah. any day of the week. For sure. And it is a departure from typical kind of tournament hockey. I mean, prior to the pro league, I guess it's a, it's a great innovation from the FIH in the sense that, um, you know, hockey, international hockey was typically either one-off test matches or a test match series against the same opposition um, or it was a tournament along the same lines of like the major, you know, your World Cups, your Olympics, all the interim commitments, I guess, were tournaments. Do you like it? Do you like that? The tricky one for me, I think, is that the Olympics is obviously still a tournament mm. and you need to be physically robust and you need to be able to have confidence in in your, yeah, in yourself, like in mind, body, in your teammates, in the coaching like, are we all robust enough to be able to like go into a heavy pressure high pressure environment and nail it for 14 days to like yeah. you know, 18 days and i think those the big tournaments like the world cup will always be sort of similar so i think you need you just need to have a good blend so i think what we sort of tend to do now is obviously the pro league is the one-off games which if we know we've got a tournament coming up our training sort of tends to reflect more what a tournament would be like like we'd, we'd train hard for a succession of day if you have back-to-back games we'll do two hard training sessions at tra- like at Bisham Abbey uh, to sort of replicate that and get some momentum going on that side of things there's still something quite romantic about like tournament hockey mm. and like you know the Germans absolute classic out for years like never started a tournament very well <laughs> but you knew by by finals going into the semis and felt like if they made the fire, they were just going to be right on it. And I think I still quite like, I'd still, yeah, I still quite like the idea of that in sport that you can, um, there's the unknowns of, yeah, yeah playing weaker, weaker sides who can cause upsets and 
with the one-off games, I think that's you know less likely to get that drama. So um, I think yeah, you just need that balance of both. But um, yeah, I mean, with the with the exception of I guess rugby sevens, especially off the football codes, it's very different. Like we play two games in three days. You know, there's that rest day, and then you go again and again and again and again and again. And there's not really a lot of time to to debrief and then look to the opposition. I mean, it's hectic. What's what's life like inside a tournament? Yeah, it's, it can be hectic. I think you've got to be well prepared, especially if you're going to somewhere, say, like India, where if you forget, I don't know, electric toothbrush charger, or something, <laughs> you're not going to be able to get hold of it. So you need to be, you know, you need to have everything with you. You need to have a kilo of coffee to get yourself food. You need to have an Xbox or a Nintendo Switch is the, is the popular one at the moment with the boys. But um, I think a lot of people fall foul of getting into a, like I was sort of, briefly describing with the Olympics getting a bit mm. too serious and a bit too full-on and not really appreciating why you're there at a tournament like it's very easy just to get locked in your own hotel room yeah turn up to the two you know the three meals a day with the rest of the team and the talk and the um, the team meetings and and that's sort of your only social interaction for the day it's really important that you've got other stuff going on um, whether that's playing xbox or playing a game of cards or you know just getting a bit creative with something there are definitely things that um yeah that need to be taken seriously try to think of some other example the world cup in bubaneshwar um the english team we, we took over a local restaurant because the, the um what was it the world league finals that we had yeah the year, the year before, before or whatever where everybody got ill you know everybody was panicking all the pds were talking to each other about what we're going to do here like like we can't have this at a world cup because you've yeah there's so much more at stake so we like we we like we we took over a local restaurant and we brought our own chef over who worked with the english uh, football team um so we employed his services for like the three weeks he worked his absolute socks off he mm. was like broken man by the end of it <laughs> um but what we could then like we could just control everything yeah. like we knew what like where the food was coming from who'd cleaned it blah blah blah, blah and like we I think we had one person with a little bit of a sniffle, but mm. on the whole, it worked. But tournament hockey, yeah, tournament hockey can be a funny old beast. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you got to you got to often think outside the box, and uh, it's not just what the the public see. But when you turn up and play, it's not just it's not just about games. There's so, there's so many, so many more team dynamic stuff going on when you're all under you're living together. You're literally sharing a room with a bloke who, yeah, you know, you might you know you might have benefited from sharing with him before, but you know what if you've got no choice <laughs> so at least like we, we try and plan like roommates like you know get a good buddy who who you can rely on you know he's clean and yeah i mean there's always going to be someone who gets to share a room with george pinner <laughs> but i think uh, you can't always uh control that but yeah yeah okay that, that's a good answer i've got one more question before we're going to go into a few quick questions so the last question for me for you rather is um you mentioned about in 2009, you tasted that gold medal success in the Euro hockey. And now uh, we refer back to you being captain of the current group. And a lot of the younger guys haven't, haven't felt anything like that. Is it difficult to impart that sort of experience and that drive onto the young, onto the young members of your team? Or do you use it? Um, good question. I think not overtly, I would say. I think I'd, I'm more of a leader who would lead by example. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be the guy yelling and screaming, you know, at every given moment, 
I just do my leading by example. And mm. I think I hopefully earn the respect of the guys around me by being a nice person, showing that you care, um, having time for people. And then the crux of it comes down, like being able to trust me on the pitch, like making the right calls, like not getting on people's back like, and just role modeling in, in that way. But yeah, there's no doubt that that 2009 um, success drives me. How much I sort of let that show to others, probably. I think other people would maybe use it a bit more. I've definitely had situations where some of the leadership group have said, look, you know, in a big team meeting, look, mm. we haven't tasted as a team mm. like genuine success. And he might, someone might say, okay, there's only Adam here who's had a gold medal or Ashley Jackson, who's won the gold medal at that tournament. Um, they're the only guys who've experienced it. So like, look up to like, you know, look up to them. I don't think I'd ever do that. It's not really in my nature to, to do it that way. It's just like, you know, let the hockey do the talking and yeah. Um, yeah sort of like lead, lead in, lead in that manner. Yeah. You mentioned when you were talking about it a while ago that in that tournament, I guess it, things just clicked for you. Um, but you did say that there were some things going on within the tournament. I mean, there was a freedom. There was a there was a really tangible sort of feeling amongst the team of belief, or or something like that. Is that is that something that you try and bring? Yeah, to the team? I think that's that's the more the cultural side of mm. of leadership, and I think that's probably been that's probably the the most conscious part of leadership. The yep. thing I think about the most mm-hmm. is not necessarily like this guy's not playing well or I'm not playing well. It's more like where's where's the team at headspace wise? Like are we building any momentum here? Like this cultural stuff, all these values, are we living to our values and like sort of like policing that? Yeah, there's like it's no longer like, trying to compare like being captain and not being captain. It's like I used to just probably be a bit more selfish, turn up to training, have the best training session that I could mm. have given the circumstances and then go home, not think about it, turn up the next day, do the same. <laughs> Whereas now it's like, right, wake up, I'm having breakfast. All right, where are the team at? Like where like where are the team at before training, mm. given what I experienced the, the days or weeks before? And where do I want the team to be in three or four hours time? Um and it it can be tricky. And I think it needs it needs to have I think within team sport, you can't just rely on one person. So I'm really lucky that we have a leadership group. So there's five of us in there who all lean, like all have different strengths. Some of us mm. are a bit more outspoken, which sort of like fills into the space that I leave, not being like that sort of shouty, having a go type person. Um, some of us are a bit more like um, tuned into people's emotions and stuff. So like, I mean, it's little things like that that, that build a, a nice little leadership group importantly to add on top of that like it's got your leadership goals have got to be aligned with the management team and i think like speaking to danny quite regularly like you've got to be your messages have got to be the same your messages of you know you've got to show that united front um there's actually one thing i had the benefit of speaking to andrew strauss who's uh obviously the ex-test captain for england and he said that him and um andy flower that they just, you know, they were just in it together. They played like good cop, bad cop at times, but like their messaging was always the same and always on point. Like always on point, and they were just unflappable, unbreakable. If people weren't pulling weight, then they knew exactly where where they stood. And I think it's yeah, it's important to have that link between 
um, players and, and management because um, you can't coexist <laughs> without each other. Mm, mm. I guess with the, the fact that you guys basically live in each other's pockets, I mean, we, we experience things similar to that over in Perth, but I mean, it's, it's almost a 24-7 job. I guess being part of the leadership group or being captain, I mean, you don't need to just worry about actually at training, but it's the entire cohesion of the team as a whole. And then even when I guess you have your day off, when even people are going out and playing their own club hockey, Mm. I mean, how people perform in club hockey can, can kind of reflect how they're going to train the week after, I guess. I mean, we're all, we're all human and and I guess driven on confidence by a certain extent, but it's, it's a stressful job. It must be. Yeah. It's, um, I, I definitely had my um, apprehensions about taking on the role. Uh, we, we actually did, to give a bit of in, insight. It was just a vote. It mm. was a player vote. I think you could vote for three people. Mm. It was like a weighted vote. So obviously your first pick got like three points and then two and mm. one. Were, and yeah, somehow I got, <laughs> got voted in. Um, but I did have a little think and I was like, do I want to do it? But then basically it was like, you've got the chance to captain your country. Mm. Like it's, it's, it's a big like thing. whether you think you're ready for it right now or not, it's a big thing. Like, will you ever get this opportunity again? Yeah. Like you've sort of got the, uh, you've got the player vote. People sort of are backing you. So just go and do it and give it your best. And um, yeah, I think I've tried to be humble enough that to accept that I'm not the perfect leader. And to use other people when my strengths necessarily don't don't work in that scenario, um, yeah, we've got to do, got to do it for another eighteen months, <laughs> so the stress may continue, <laughs> long continue. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, well, mate, that's been fantastic. I think I've learned a lot, especially about GB hockey, and definitely the way that you guys go about things, and about you. But I've got three questions to finish off. Okay. I tend to do this with every um, interviewee. I mean, co-host. You're a co-host for today's Thanks. episode. Um, best player you've ever played against? You know what? I heard. I heard, I heard Jez say Mo Furster mm. in his, and I mm. think I'd have to agree. I'd, I'd also say he's probably one of the. Uh, he's probably the best player I've played with. We. Wait, I guess it could no, that's be not both. The but and that's not I'm the not, Okay, both. That's I happening next. He was I'm saying very, I'm, very yeah. tough to play against. Well, so we're going with my first time. Best player you've ever played against. Yeah, but I'm going to caveat with also played with maybe. And that's detracting big time from my, from my content. <laughs> I don't know if I can accept that. <laughs> okay, okay, my first. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, go um, on. Tell me about yeah, it. Yeah, I think partly due to his size, he's just massive. Mm. I mean, playing. I was. I had a period of uh, international hockey playing centre midfield, getting matched up against Mo Furster. Mm. And no matter if he mistrapped the ball poorly, he could just stick his big ass in the way and he just couldn't <laughs> tackle the guy. And I think, you know, as much as that's not a, that's just a nat- natural trait that you're born with, um, you know, you just couldn't get the ball off him. Mm. Um, but it wasn't until playing with him that I think I really appreciated how good he was. So maybe he's not the best player I've ever played with. Maybe I just appreciated his his skills and assets, his ass, um, <laughs> <laughs> until I did play with him. But I think he just he understood the game so well. He sort of he knew. I think he was basically just. I shared a room with him for one of the 
um, HIL seasons. And he was just sport obsessed. He would be mm. watching handball, basketball, football, American football. And he, he sort of knew everything about every sport. And when it sort of like translated that into hockey, he was like, he sort of knew what was required at any stage of the game, given the scoreline, given how much time was left. And I don't think I'd ever really geeked out on sport <laughs> like that. I've sort of tried to get a bit closer to it, like watching other sports and learning from different things. But he was, he was so good at soaking all that up, like soaking all that up. Um, but he was also just a nice, friendly guy who gained the respect. Like, I mean, you had the experience of playing with him in India as well. He just won respect. I mean, he, he's won World Player of the Year however many times and Olympic gold. So he sort of earned that automatically. But he was genuinely like just a good, humble guy. Got all the Indian players like on board, like playing to like sort of our style, which is part of the trick in that Hockey India League in a mm. short space of time, getting everyone playing the same way. He managed to command that respect as captain. And, and we had a, a successful few years um, in that Kalinga Lancers team. So, yeah, I look up to, up to Mo for sure. Okay, that's that's against and with, is that right? Um, with okay, actually, I'll do, I'll do I'll do a different one. Um, well, you said David Ames. Um, I think okay. it was tongue yeah, in cheek. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 never tongue in cheek. There was a caveat. Was this, was this on a? Was this? Was, on a, when did I say this? Is this it was a, on another forum. I think you said because he makes you look good or something like that. I don't uh, know exactly <laughs> what it was. He. Um, Aims, yeah. I mean, but I have heard you talk, there is a talk more, very fondly yeah, of him before. And I think we all know players like these. Mm. Like, they just, he is like unbelievable professional. Mm. He, yeah, he cares so much about the team and people. Um, he really gives it his all. But he's also one of the most talented hockey players and physically talented players I've ever, yeah, played alongside. I, had the luxury. He came over to play for Beeston as mm. a young kid. Um, I think the, he was playing for Ireland at the time. And um, I'm trying to think who the current uh, the Irish coach at the time. He got in touch with our club coach and said, "Look, I've got a kid here. I think he needs some. Like, he needs exposure to a more regular, better standard of hockey." So we said, "Yeah, we'll, we'll take him." <laughs> um, and little did we know we were taking on this sort of twenty-year-old. Uh, down to earth, like most humble, like humble guy. But I keep talking about his personality. But his hockey did the talking because he's quite a quiet guy. His hockey does the talking. Like, and he sort of playing in midfield alongside Amesy, who would just sit in at central midfield, one of the best tacklers I've ever met. He re- reads the game so well. He allowed me just that bit of freedom to just go out and play my game. He was definitely a huge part of that successful beast and club side that we had that won a few national titles and. We had a few good EHL runs. Um, mm. I just think he's maybe a bit, maybe a bit underrated because he doesn't mm. ever. He's he's never arrogant or anything mm. like that. Like he just he's just a workhorse. Yeah, um, you've you've probably got guys that for you know sure of in the in the Aussie squad. Um, I mean, in elite sport, it's it's like the way that it's produced and on TV. Like you only really see a fraction of what's actually going on, and it means that guys like um, you know Amesy just slip through yeah. the cracks a little bit in the in the public eye because the stuff that they do is just exceptional every time and you really have to go yeah. to a game and watch watch them do their craft to notice yeah. it. It's not just it's not just the games and it it's funny you say like the commentators often often just get a couple of 
players' names in their heads and they repeat those over and over <laughs> again. Maybe because they get on the ball a little bit more or or whatever. But like Ainsley's not like just sitting in there doing the dog's body work. But he does it. He does it in training. Every mm. I, there's very rarely a training session where he's not like the best or one of the best players on the on the turf. And mm. um, yeah, to have guys like him gives me huge confidence. Okay. So when he says this is quite different, I think. Jeremy Hayward said Dylan Wotherspoon's the best player he's ever played with because he makes me look good. I think he was meaning because Dylan is bad, which is not the case. But I think that was friendly banter. Whereas you're saying that Amesy makes you look good in that he frees you up to play your yeah. style of hockey. Yeah, exactly. That's and a good I think team, that's uh, yeah. If you could have a team full of Amesies, you'd you know that's a great like someone's mate. armor for it. Yeah. <laughs> so let's say two more questions. One, you've said one of your favorite sayings is "smell the noise." I have no uh, idea what that means. No, I don't really either. But it's something that one of my old um, <laughs> one of my old captains when I played when I first broke into the Beeston team. He's actually the current Beeston first team coach. It's mm. weird how these things all pan out. But mm. uh, Stephen Wood, when, whenever we used to win a short corner, he would just he wasn't involved in the corner. I think he might have done a couple of injections or something at one point. Mm. He'd normally be back on the halfway line, mm. but you just hear three or four seconds before the corner gets pulled out. It just from the halfway line, smell the noise. And I've no idea what it means. But it's something about yeah. the backboard and maybe the ball going in the back of the net. And it, if those who know Woody know he's a bit eccentric and a bit odd. And that's sort of like his, his charm. And I quite like that. He didn't ever take himself too seriously. Even in the middle yeah. of a game, he had yeah. that moment and that space to be able to just have a, have a crack and have a yeah, bit of a cool. laugh. And I quite like that. And I think yeah. that's something that I've tried to yeah, try to carry through. Nice. I'm not going to chalk it up as a as a golden nugget noise. of wisdom. It's a no, good no, it's a good no. side note, but it's not it's not a finishing <laughs> note. I can't believe I wrote that down. Yeah, it's pretty. This is good stuff. Last question: Do you have I want one piece of advice for a young kid just starting out in their hockey journey? I think it would just be to um, to make sure you, would, especially as a young athlete, is to make sure you enjoy it and keep playing as many different sports as you possibly can at a young age. Um, it definitely helped me. Like the more team, especially if you want to be in teams, like the more different team dynamics you can be in. You might be the best hockey player on your team, but if you're going to play cricket, you might have to play, you know, second fiddle to other guys or maybe not get a bowl or not get, you know, down, down the order in the batting lineup. So you just, you sort of have to appreciate where, I think you get that better rounded view of what teams mm. are about. Um, so yeah, playing lots of sports, but most of all enjoying it. I, I had this question actually from, I did an event, uh, at my old school and a, a parent came up to me with their, with her two kids. And she was, um, she was like, what advice could you give? And she really caught me. Like I was halfway through <laughs> speaking to an old teacher or something. And then she was like, what advice would you give it to my two boys? And I was like, Ugh. and she really caught me out. I didn't know what to say. So I was sort of like, I, luckily I got kept like dragged away to talk to someone else, but she then grabbed me again. And said, look, I really want to know. And I was like, <laughs> she looked like a real pushy parent. And I won't mention her name. She's probably not going to listen to this. No offense, Tom. But um, That's okay. I was like, your, uh, your kids just need, you need, I need, I looked at these two boys and they didn't look like they were really having that much fun. So I was like, just make sure they are like, you need their best interests at heart. She was like, no, oh, is it speed? Is it like stick skills? You know, mm. all this sort of stuff. I was like, you just need to be enjoying it. If you're not mm. enjoying it, you're not going to have a long career. What, whatever level that might be at um, you have to find the enjoyment uh, nothing. 
it's not a one liner that, but it's uh, I like it. Enjoy it. Sage <laughs> advice. Sage advice. Yeah. Thanks, mate. We're gonna wrap it up there. Beautiful. Well done. Thank you for for gracing us with your presence on the help side. No worries. Can you um send me the royalties online? Bank transfer. Oh, of course. Yeah, I will naturally. Goes, yeah. Naturally, okay. just flick through through your details. <laughs> Thanks, uh, mate. Thanks for having me. Big thank you to the production team of David Moore, Tim Collier, and Jimmy Stevens. If you do like the help side, please like, subscribe, interact. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at the help side on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That's it for now. We'll catch you on the help side next time.